This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Rob Wolf with another episode of New Books in Science Fiction, where we talk to authors about their books, their writing lives, and what's on their minds. This is the Wormhole in the Donut edition. I'm excited today to have as my guest, Rika Aoki. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Hi, Rika. She is a poet, composer, and teacher. Her mixed genre collection, Seasonal Velocities, and her poetry collection, Why Dust Shall Never Settle Upon This Soul, were both finalists for the Lambda Literary Awards. She is also the author of the novel, Hey Mele A Hilo. Today, we're going to talk about her new novel, Light from Uncommon Stars, which is packed with as much variety and pleasure as a box of lovingly prepared assorted donuts from your favorite funky but long-standing neighborhood donut shop. Astute listeners may have noticed that I just mentioned donuts three times, and that's because Light from Uncommon Stars does in fact feature as one of its primary settings a donut shop. It just so happens that the family that owns the shop is from a faraway galaxy, and they're trying to turn the large rotating donut on top of their shop into a stargate to bring interstellar tourists to Earth. And the matriarch of the outer space family, Lan Tran, falls head over heels for Shizuka Satomi, a world-famous violin teacher who is also contractually obliged to deliver souls to hell. And let's not forget Shizuka's newest student, Katrina Wen, a trans runaway fleeing an abusive and rejecting home who has no formal violin training but is a brilliant musician with raw natural talent. Light from Uncommon Stars is a book about talent and genius and creativity and love and the sacrifices or the deals with the devil that some people may make to achieve success. And I cannot wait to discuss it with Rika Aoki, who is on the line with me from her home in Los Angeles. A big welcome again. You've already said hello, but hello again. Hello again. I'm so glad to be here. And thank you, everybody who's listening. Thank you very much, Rob, for having me. It is a pleasure to have you, and it was a pleasure to read your book. Thank you. So you have three main characters Mm -hmm. who, I think if you describe them separately, could easily come from different books. 
I just gave the barest outline of who they are. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a bit more about Katrina, Shizuka, and Lan, who they are, and what are the different challenges that they face? Mm. Well, let's go in order. So Katrina, Katrina Wen is a biracial trans runaway who is leaving a home in the East Bay. And she has this dream of making enough money by playing violin covers of video game songs on YouTube and hopefully to get it monetized enough that she can make a go at it. But she runs into some issues with her parents, her father mostly, who is not too keen on her being transgender, you know, go figure. And so she ends up running away to to Los Angeles, to the San Gabriel Valley. Now, the San Gabriel Valley is particularly significant to those of us of Asian descent because there are very there are very many restaurants and communities, the populations. It, it's uh, often thought of as the Asian American holy land. You can get like, you know, the freshest rice noodles and the best lap chong. And so she comes to the San Gabriel Valley to crash. She's trying to crash at a friend's place and just trying to get safe. She's got her escape bag and she's just trying to get somewhere safe. But uh, sometimes when you jump, things don't work out exactly as you expect. So in order to survive, she has to hustle. And eventually she somehow finds her way to meet Shizuka. One of the fun things about writing Katrina is I have a friend named Katrina and I just want readers to, I want, this book is actually dedicated to Katrina and all Katrinas, wherever they may be. And the reason is that she was, she was very sad many, many years ago where, and I asked why, and she said, well, my name's Katrina and there's this horrible hurricane called Katrina. And every time I say my name now, people say it's like the hurricane, like the hurricane. And way back then, I looked at her and I just said, I'm going to write a book one of these days. And I'm going to make the main character Katrina. And I hope that gives people something else to talk about. And I've remembered it all these, all these years. And that's how Katrina got her name. Oh, my God. I love that story. That's amazing. So it's a nice thing about being a writer and being an incredibly fortunate writer is sometimes I can like uh, do things that I promised to do and fulfilling promises is really, really cool. I guess fulfilling promises leads us to Shizuka. So Shizuka Satomi was a brilliant violinist. She's totally beautiful. I just think about the old, some of the Japanese idols in the 1980s in this show up here at 70s and 80s Japan, they were, they were so glamorous. She's that, except she's also a, a brilliant violinist. Brilliant. But you wouldn't know it anymore because she made a deal with hell to preserve her soul, which she really had buyer's regret, shall we say. In order to get her soul back, she's been finding these prima donnas who are like, you know, one convenient lie away from making it as as an artist or making becoming, you know, these very acclaimed artists. And she's been taking their souls to hell. And she's got one more to go before her debt's paid and she can have her music back. She can play again. She can go back to what she was supposed to be doing. But instead of her usual pampered prodigy students who are never in many ways, never really in Shizuka's eyes, worthy of playing true music anyway. They just had talent. And so it made the transactions really easy. She ends up finding the real McCoy, 
with Katrina. Katrina's got actual appreciation on a level that Shizuka can, for the first time, relate to and think, oh, this one's got it. Have you ever been a teacher and, or you know, sometimes I teach writing and sometimes I teach, you know, when I teach writing and poetry, sometimes there's just the student, you got it. You just got it. We're good. And that's how she feels. And this is the first time she's, she's felt this. And so it then becomes, do I sacrifice tomorrow's music for today's? Do I sacrifice the child for the mother? Even though the mother is hurting, what does one do? Even though that's not really the child, what does one do? And so they work together. And the whole issue here is that Shizuka's music, despite the love she eventually has for both Katrina and her music, Shizuka's music is really, 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 really important to her. Right. So it becomes a dilemma for her. It becomes a horrible, horrible dilemma. And then what helps her sort of work it out is not necessarily music, but there's another character and her her name is Lantran. And Lantran comes from somewhere else. Her true form is plum colored and she's got an extra joint in her elbow. And she she's escaping. She's basically a refugee, just leaving with her family, escaping a war. And they've got a donut shop in El Monte, California. But the funny thing is they run it exactly like a starship. In fact, they're calling her captain. And if you look outside of the donut shop at night, it looks like the starship view screens. And and their goal is to live here and eventually build a stargate and try to rebuild a little bit of what they've lost. But sometimes owning a donut shop and being a mother requires different skills than being a starship captain and somebody who's fleeing war. And through meeting with Shizuka, which happens in the book, each of them I wanted to, I wanted each of them to learn something from each other. I wanted each of them to not discover a piece of the other, you know, a missing piece in each other, which I think hmm, I didn't feel like writing, but each of them in helping the other discovers a piece of themselves. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Katrina. Yes. As you've pointed out, she's very different than the six previous students that Shizuka has made famous. Mm -hmm. I have a quote here, and I don't remember who said it. Maybe it was you as the storyteller, the narrator, or the omniscient narrator. Hell favored people who recognized their brilliance. Mm -hmm. But Katrina doesn't really recognize her brilliance. I mean, she's really just trying to survive. And yet, Shizuka is, in fact, drawn to her, I think, because of some of the things you you described, that she has this kind of genuine and pure talent. Mm -hmm. And... There's sort of a confluence. It seems to me that her experience as a trans youth, as someone who really knows and has learned to survive in whatever way she needs to to survive, makes her so hungry to learn. And so at one point she, she observes, she says to Shizuka, Katrina says, when you're trans, you're always looking and listening. You need to see what might be coming, hearing the next danger ahead. And she relates that to how she can observe Shizuka playing. Katrina has no training in, in reading music, but she can watch Shizuka and take it all in. So this trauma that she's experienced in her, her life, she's making it work for her in this other setting where she's actually gaining something beautiful. She's, she's learning so much. So I wonder, I mean, if I got that right or not, I wonder what you think of that. Well, I think for some people, this book might seem like a surprising read or maybe in some ways almost an unbelievable read. And I was worried about that a little bit, but I was hoping that it would come through that 
the life of a trans woman is kind of rough. And it is this always looking, always searching, always looking for danger, always trying, but not just looking for danger, always trying to figure out what the next opportunity is, what the next safe space is, what the next exit is, the next option is. And that's something about Katrina, even towards the end, that Katrina goes through so many things, but through it all, she wants to live and she's doing what she can to get by. Being trans and knowing a lot of trans people, I've known a lot of artists who uh, who, who aren't here anymore, who are gone. They they killed themselves, many of them. A lot. I know a lot of people. I think I know more people who've committed suicide than than most most people. I know a lot of. I I, used to, I still say you know being trans means knowing a lot of dead people, and they were talented. A lot of them more talented than I am, to be honest with you. But the ones who survive, the ones who, who've been able to make it through share one thing in common, all of us, all of us think every day about what does it take to survive the day and, and how do I move forward? And, you know, even with the beautiful treatment that I'm getting from Tor, even with even with having a night, having a wonderful agent, even with the success, even with being interviewed by you in the back of my head is tomorrow if this is gone, where's my money? Where's my roof? Where's my food? What can I do? And I think I'm going to have that till till the end of, of my life. And I think with Katrina, we see that she's never quite safe. but she works with it and she uses that fear to move her forward. And sometimes that's the best we can do. So that part, that tension there, I, I wonder, you know, I, I just want, it might seem like, wow, she's scared again. <sighs> yeah, we are. Thank you for creating this character, Katrina, and for you're welcome introducing her to the world and giving a sense of what her experience and your experience has been like. Rob, it's so hard, isn't it, to talk about these characters you love so dearly without spoiling the story, isn't it? Oh my gosh! Absolutely, but, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Let's well, let's try not to spoil it. Absolutely, but yeah, I'm doing my best. But Katrina was one of those characters. It's you know, can I tell you something kind of funny too? It's just that you have to really indicate trauma uh, versus write it out completely. They say show don't tell a lot of times in every writing class you've ever taken. It's show don't tell. But sometimes if you show people actually what's there, it itself can be sort of its own story. So you show enough that you can can push your own story forward, but you can't get stuck in the trauma because then you write a different book. Was that a challenge? Did you find yourself struggling with that and writing too much about the trauma and then pulling back? Mm -hmm. Light from Uncommon Stars is coming in at about 138,000 words, about 130-something thousand words. I had it up to about 160,000, and then I had to pull back on it and really make sure that whatever I'm writing is for the reader, not for me. I want to talk about just the the concept of the book, because as you say, I mean, I think maybe someone who reads a description of it would wonder, oh, is this funny? Oh, but it sounds like it could be serious. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is all those things. And I can testify after having read the book that it seems absolutely fitting and natural that all these elements came together, that you have a, a trans runaway musician, space aliens, and a teacher 
essentially in cahoots with hell. Mm-hmm. But how did you know it was the right way to go? And how did you sell it to your agent and pitch it to a publisher? Because the bare bones description might sound a bit incongruous. I thought I had screwed myself over when I wrote this book. I had this book and it originally, I just wanted to write this very straightforward book about space cowboys and a little bit of magic. And then suddenly violins got involved. And then I just realized actually what I wanted to write about. In fact, what really set the story off was seeing a big donut shop and thinking, what if that was a Stargate and and we had something happen? So anyway, this all got kind of cooked into a book that I had been trying to toy with. I have no idea. I have no, you know, I just thought, here I am spending, how many years of my life that I spent? I just spent like three or four years of my life writing this thing that I don't think anyone's going to ever want to read. Maybe, maybe I I can find a a niche press who will publish it and we're going to be okay and it's going to be okay. And, you know, that's okay. But my agent really liked it. And I have to tell you, the good and hard work that I believe so many queer and gay and trans and POC uh, science fiction fantasy writers have done before me really helped make it easier for me. Because seriously, when working with Tor, working with my agent, working with uh, Macmillan, and also with people like you who live and love science fiction and love books, the fact that you're open to this, that is something one book alone does not do. So I really felt I really felt lucky. That's the best word. I felt really lucky that when I wrote this book, the market was ready. And that's just luck, Rob. I had no idea. And I I am just really grateful. You have a writer like Rachel Pollock, a trans woman who's a writer, and and she's been doing it for years. I'm not here without Rachel. And I just want to say thank you. And, you know, just for those of you who are science fiction readers, that you may not yourselves be queer or trans, the fact that you are reading a book and reading books that have writers and stories with these characters, I have to tell you, thank you, because it really does change the world and it really helps us. You're on the shoulders of people who've come before and we're all we're all kind of in it together, the reader and the writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's quite a time. Mm-hmm. And I think right now there's so much good science fiction, so much good fantasy out there. And uh, it's good to feel not totally out there, that there's people who are willing to read. Light from Uncommon Stars was just recommended by Amazing Stories of all places. And I remember Amazing Stories. And, you know, it was like I would sneak a copy of it into my parents' shopping cart. But it always seemed like something, of course, I would never do that. Look at me. How does somebody like me ever get published by something like Amazing Stories? But there it was. And this older white gentleman just told me how much he loved the book. And Again, that doesn't happen just because it's one book. This community has done some serious soul searching and and some serious growth and some real, real serious, made real serious effort to find great stories wherever they could be found. And I know this is about my book, but you got to understand that without all of that, my book doesn't happen. And I'm really pleased. And I'm just so grateful. I hear you. I hear you. Well, your characters are a bit like 
maybe the receptive world that you're experiencing right now because they're so open to each other. They're all so different, but none of them are actually really surprised by each other. I mean, Katrina Mm -hmm. isn't shocked that Shizuka has been damned to hell, literally. Like, she just kind of accepts it. And then Shizuka isn't surprised that space aliens own a donut shop. Mm -hmm. You know, they're all kind of like, I think they're all coming from their own place of sort of used to being outside that when they meet someone else who has this unusual story they're they're just open to it exactly and that's what i wanted because at the end of the day we've all gone through as queers as people of color as just you know whatever you know i i don't know all the margins but we have every one of us every one of us i i can imagine has felt like an outsider and imagine if that very feeling can be what unites us. It's like, oh, well, you know, I'm this, so that's good enough for me too. That's where I let myself dream of good things the most that for some, that our scars could actually, could actually be conduits through which we can communicate. It's funny, the person who maybe is the least tolerant is Lan, because she she's thinking, what, what is Shizuka worried about sounds made from a wooden box? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, here's Shizuka's making this beautiful music, but she's like, I'm running from a, a war, and she's worried about music. My uh, civilization has evolved beyond music, something as trivial as that. So, mm-hmm. But even she comes around, not to ruin anything, but... Not to ruin everything, but I mean, even for someone like that, you just, you show up at the Olive Garden, and... And suddenly it's all breadsticks. Exactly, exactly. That's Uh, quite a a cultural (laughs) moment, a cultural exchange at the Olive Garden. And I think this happens in our, in all communities that feel a little bit, that are feeling under attack. We have the generals, we have the people who have gotten us through the hard times, the ones who are rescuers, our our stalwarts, our our community leaders, they pay a horrible price because what has so many times made them strong enough to deliver us has sometimes crippled their emotional growth and even their own ability to be truthful with themselves. And with Lan, I saw that. See, originally, you have a character like Shizuka, who's an older queer woman who's Asian. And then you have Lan, who's an older queer woman who's Asian. And we don't want to joy luck club the whole thing. We want to make sure that these characters have a good spread between them. And what I really wanted to show is uh, with Lan was duty. Duty to family, duty to family, duty to family. But she has a very rigid idea of what that duty is. She has a very rigid idea of what family is. She has a very rigid idea of who her children are. Whereas with Shizuka, Shizuka hears the music and he says, you know, we're not concerned with bodies. We are concerned with souls. And so what seems to be something that makes Shizuka evil, that single-minded concern on what a soul is, is exactly what Lon needs to hear and is missing in Lon's life. I wanted to ask about a particular challenge that I think you took on. The The book is about, in large part, music. Mm-hmm. It's about people who care so passionately about it and care about growing in it and expressing so much through it. But you're writing a book, so no one can actually hear the music. But you, as the author, need to convey 
what the experience of this thing that we literally can't hear, but you need to describe it in some way or find a substitute way to convey its beauty and intensity and the creativity and the inspiration. And I think you do that. I wanted to ask you really what was going through your mind as you were doing it and what strategies you used. I mean, the pinnacle of that to me was when Katrina gives this performance, a big performance, and you're basically conveying the impact of each movement by talking about what Katrina is feeling as she's playing this. So we're not hearing the music, but we're experiencing something else. We're experiencing almost like her life Mm -hmm. through images, her family, teachers, the heartache, the suffering. So what was that like? How did you find a way to be true to the experience of this music, but doing it through words, you know, on a page or screen? When one is a poet and is writing novels, Sometimes we, I think I can, I feel at a horrible disadvantage. I still write at the speed of a poet. Sometimes some, some writers will say, I wrote 3,000 words today and I'm just looking at them and just thinking, huh? How? Huh? What? I, what? You know, I come from the world where, you know, what did you do today? I wrote a line and then I erased it, you know, and you're doing that, you know, uh, I can get myself up to about a thousand words a day. Okay. And that's kind of my top limit. But during certain moments, I'm really glad I'm a poet because I, I know darn well that I can convey music through words. And uh, whether or not I can pull it off, knowing that I can, quote unquote, gives me the chutzpah to actually do it. So what can I use? I can use imagery. I can use analogy. But mostly I can vary my sentence structures. I can bring in words. I can, I can play with clauses. I can, I can concatenate my grammar. I can write sentences so they, uh, so they enjam one sentence into the next. I, I'm doing all of these things. I use, uh, I layer sentence fragments occasionally to build a collage of meaning. And these are all things that are poet tricks. Some fiction writers do it amazingly well. Toni Morrison's um, Tony Morrison's amazing at this. But also there are some places like Roger Zelazny in the original Amber series taught me so much about being a poet and writing. But but in any case, it was fun. It was a challenge. It was, can I do this? Is when I when I was writing that last part, it's like, okay, I've been a writer for many years. What have I learned? Can I pull this off? And uh, just letting the readers know those pieces I wrote in real time. I listened to the piece and I was writing with each piece. Now, that didn't mean I didn't clean it up later, but the initial drafts, those are all written in real time. Wow. So the music was flowing mm-hmm. through you in a way. And if you, if you read the piece out loud to some of those pieces of music, you might, you might catch some of my breath. Wow. Okay. That's why I love these interviews. It's like, you know, it's like I feel I can give people who are interested a little more insight. But yeah, those pieces are written and they had to be because the music had to be visceral and I had to have the characters in my head, what they could be thinking and really just be present. I owed that to the story. I owed that to the music. And above all, I owed it to the readers. So I have to ask you what your relationship is to playing the violin. Mm hmm. To donuts. Mm-hmm. And then really the last thing, I guess, is I have to ask what your relationship to hell is. Sure. Let's go one at a time. So the violin and I became friends two or three years, three years ago or so, maybe, maybe four. Time flies, doesn't it? Maybe four. Yeah, I don't know. But I learned how to play the violin in writing this book. 
I didn't know how to play the violin. I didn't know how, I didn't know. I remember going into a violin store just, you know, far before I started writing this, I had no idea even how to make a sound with one of these things. There were cellos and violas and basses and what is this? What are the frets? I'm a piano player. I play guitar. I play flute. I can usually make my way around an instrument. But when you're talking about a violin, you're talking about an institution, aren't you? And so I was intimidated by the violin. But eventually, I first looked at how the violins were made. And then I, I bought a violin from eBay, just, just like Katrina did. And I taught myself via YouTube and just listening to music. I taught myself how to play. I would listen to background music, BGM music and gaming music. And I would just harmonize and, and play. And I, I had one book and I started to pick it up. And I thought, okay, now the really nice thing about violins for me and maybe as a trans woman is I'm only using a part of my voice when I'm speaking with you right now because the voice that comes out is not the voice that's in my head. Remember, my vocal cords are, it's part of, you know, the way we tell trans women apart. And so I've always felt as a disadvantage, I don't sing in public very often unless it's a very queer event, even though I love to. There's so much I don't do. But with the violin, because the violin sings and the violin in so many ways is as agile as the human voice, suddenly when I play the violin, I feel I can sing through it, which is, again, something I put into the book, which I could have never figured out had I not made friends with the violin on my own. I think that sometimes writing novels, it almost feels weird to say and disingenuous to say that learning how to play the violin was part of my research, although that's technically true. What it was, was research allowed me to make friends with the violin and make my life so much better and more enriching. Your book is also, it seems to me, a tribute to people who are really committed to doing something excellently. Because when I looked at basically every character, everyone eventually becomes or is already really good at something. Even Shizuka's cook, mm-hmm. who's sort of her assistant, Astrid, she's excellent at, at this thing that she does. As long as you don't give her bitter melon, she still has no idea what to do with the bitter melon. Go on. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, everyone's got an Achilles heel, you know. Heck? I mean, you, you, never mind. But go on. <laughs> Lan's daughter, Shirley, who is also a holograph, I guess, but she is genuinely also her daughter. She becomes excellent at whatever the different skills that are required to create a Stargate, even better than her mother. Like everyone is really committed to learning. That's one thing they all have and to becoming really good at what they do. And there's a Lucy, the Luthier. Luthier? Luthier, uh-huh. Luthier, who was making violins, repairing violins. And she comes from a long line of artisans, craftsmen who have done this, although she mm-hmm. feels very insecure about her abilities. She too excels at it. There's even a master donut maker. I think it's Edwin who becomes the master yes, excellent yes. At, at making donuts. So I just wanted to ask you about the importance you place on doing a job well and people finding the thing that that makes their heart sing so that they do the thing well because they love it so much. Mm, I think that's really been ingrained in my personality. And maybe growing up, I was pushed towards, towards achievement. But what it's given me back the ability to create music or to write or to do these things is, I think, has enhanced my ability to love. 
because it's definitely enhanced my ability to teach because I feel that when I am teaching my students, even if they don't see their own excellence, I can kind of point them where they might find it. You know, I don't want to find it for them because then it becomes something else. But it's fun to to do that. You look at somebody like Astrid who fails and fails and fails and fails at trying to use bitter melon. It's not just being gifted. Being gifted is nice, but you have, one has to work at it. I hope people see how hard everybody is working, you know, how hard they're trying to make their lives better, which again goes back towards, um, I remember, uh, do you mind if I get a little bit heavier up? Of course not. I remember losing uh, friends to AIDS who gave up. Now, I can never understand what it would be to suffer through AIDS, thank goodness. But there are people who stopped taking medications and people who just gave up and they just got tired. And you just want to say, fight, there's so much to live for. Fight, there's so much to live for. Every time a friend of mine commits suicide, it's like, there's so much to live for. And so I think every character that I, all of my main characters that I write, I can't have them say anything else to a reader, but there's so much to live for. And if you can't understand it from Shizuka, you can understand it from Lan. If you can't get it from Lan, you can get it from Lucia. If you can't get it from Lucia, you can get it from Astrid. If you can't get it from Astrid, you can get it from Edwin. If you can't get it from Edwin, you can get it from... You see what I'm saying? And so this is where I think I'm at my most uh, political. And my politics are live, damn it. Hmm, I should have called the episode that, live, Mm. damn it. (laughs) And donuts are life. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, and so donuts, I mean, are you a big fan of donuts? I know there are a lot of donut shops in LA. Donut shops are LA. I mean, there's just, and also the interplay between the donuts, where uh, the, how donuts have embraced and been embraced by the Asian community, because it's easy to run a donut shop if you're Asian. Uh, You don't, you don't need huge language skills. You don't have to talk it's like that you point you give them donuts you smile they're gone and the whole incident with the previous owners of the donut shop that's actually a riff on what happened in southern california there was this one guy his name is ted Moy, who was called the southern california donut king who worked at a winchell's learned how to make the donuts opened up his own chain and then taught cambodian families all over Southern California, how to make donuts. And that's why now there are so many of them with donut shops, because it was their way to make a better life. So in in Southern California, donuts are very much an Asian thing, particularly a Southeast Asian thing. In the Tron family's experience, they they thought they could just take the original, the previous owner's formula, Mm -hmm. use their replicator, Mm -hmm. and make the exact same kinds of donuts, literally exactly, because they have this very high-tech intergalactic replicator. Mm -hmm. And yet, in the end, and I don't think that's a big spoiler, really, but as a business model, it eventually didn't work, and they needed to to add a little something, a little Mm -hmm. je ne sais quoi to the formula. Yes. And again, there's a moral there, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, eventually put the metronome away and play what's in your heart. (laughs) 
Right. Beautiful. Beautiful. And you know, with with the donuts, my favorite my favorite donuts aren't necessarily the, always the prettiest, fanciest ones. Sometimes the best donuts are the ones you know where you're just sitting there and 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 it's just this donut and there's this old Asian guy spitting on the floor next to you, scratching lotto cards, and you're eating this donut and you're going, I have to get this coffee and I have to eat this and God, I hope I don't need to use the bathroom because I know there's no bathroom here, but it's still the best donut anyway. Yeah, that, 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 that. You must have had so much fun writing this book because you got to play around with all these metaphors. I mean, you mixed physics and donuts and, and you know, Star like Star Trek geekdom. Totally. There's so many great lines, too. There was a line, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to make donuts, but that didn't mean being a rocket scientist didn't help. Yes, yes, yes. And I really wanted to do that, where I think that so many times uh, cliches are far too black and white. And sometimes it's like, well, you know, you can. And, and I really wanted to make it in this that everybody changes, nobody completely transforms. At the end of the day, Katrina is still Katrina. Auntie Floresta is still Auntie Floresta. Lon is still Lon. Maybe a little bit better, but still Lon. Shizuka and Lon. They're still arguing, and they're going to argue like an old married couple because that's just who they are, but they're going to love each other dearly kind of thing. You know, just all of these things that are going on, everybody stays. Everybody stays who they are, just better who they are. So we've covered violin. We've covered donuts. But what about your relationship to or your interest in hell? Well, with hell... A lot of what I am interested in about hell and and the afterlife and how various various heavenly infernal elements work with each other, a lot of that's actually going to be in my next next book, you know, which is actually takes place after light from uncommon stars. But what is happening here is <laughs> the reason that I kept calling the characters demons as opposed to devils. And for those of all of you who play tabletop role-playing games know that it's demons in the abyss and devils in hell because there's lawful evil and there's chaotic evil. I messed that up on purpose because I wanted to show that we're talking about something a little bit different here. These demons and things I think represent there's racism, there's not willing to listen, there's eating food without tasting it, there's living life according to duty without understanding the human behind it. So my concept of hell is a very human one. It's many of the things that we have to fight for every day. You know, every every time that somebody told you, go get a real job, you know, or something like that, that's part of this hell. But it's also things like you could be a success if you only had this, or the reason you're not successful is, and it's something always out of your control. Now, there are some things that are out of your control, but there's always a good way to play your hand and there's always a bad, you know, there's always a better way to play. And that's kind of what I was thinking about hell. I, I was using a very, to be honest, a very sort of Asian concept where hell is not a place where you're evil. Hell's a place where you're ignorant. And sometimes holding on to, to, to tradition and holding on to prejudice and, and holding on to your self-hate and all of that, these are products of ignorance, not of evil. And so, you know, like, you know, the, the demon, sorry, just last, last thing, the demon at the end, if you notice, I'm hoping people notice, there's, there's evil there, but it's not quite the way you expect it to be. And that's why. 
Well, I will say no more about the demon at the end because I do not want to ruin anything. I think and hope that your book has dispelled some ignorance in the world <laughs> about many different things. And I so very much appreciate your coming on New Books and Science Fiction to share your thoughts. You're so welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I have been talking to Rika Aoki about her new novel, Light from Uncommon Stars, which was released in September from Tor Books. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and feel free to support the show with a positive review if you are in the mood. Yes! Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf. I edit the show. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is the co-editor. Please be well. Please keep reading, and please come back again.